And for everybody who's going to be with me, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. We're going to plow through two chapters today. <gasps> who's excited about that? 18 and 19 we will go through today as we continue on in our series, Apocalypse Now. Uh, we are almost done. There are only three more weeks after this, Lord willing, uh, to wrap up our series. We've started with Revelation chapter 1. We've been going through it a little bit, of the time, a little bit at a time over the past year, and uh, our plan is to have it done as we head into Christmas time. And so we are getting closer by chipping away at chapter 18 and 19 this morning. A couple of other things quickly, uh, just before we get into the Word, while you are looking for the passage. Uh, number one is, uh, we knew this was coming, you heard news this week of just some updates that the province is giving in terms of COVID restrictions for various things. We are slowly and slowly opening up more. This is all good news. This is all exciting stuff. Uh, the, what has changed for churches is they are giving churches the choice. They are saying you can either go vaccinated only and then open up a lot more, not have capacity limits or spacing or anything, or you can remain as you are now with unvaccinated people here as well and just stay under the restrictions for a little bit longer. So we talked about it at the staff level. We talked about it at the board level. To be clear, we talked about it for about 15 seconds. Uh, we have no desire to draw a line between vaccinated and unvaccinated here. And so we're going to continue with the restrictions. We'll be happy when they're gone, but they're not that bad. And we are wanting to move through this together. So to our unvaccinated brothers and sisters, uh, we want you with us all the way through. And so we're going to keep moving forward in that direction. Uh, so that is one thing. The second thing to let you aware of is you all know there was an explosion in Wheatley back in the summer. Uh, and much of the town and, and surrounding areas uh, where the explosion happened had to evacuate. So a lot of people are out of their homes. A lot of businesses are out of their homes. And so with that happening, one of the groups that is out of their home has been Wheatley Baptist Church. And so uh, they are in the evacuation zone. So they have not been in their building since the explosion happened. And so they have survived kind of this far, kind of like we did. They just said, we're going outdoors for the summer. And they just enjoyed worshiping outside. Uh, they met in one of the conservation areas and they've done their worship there and their gatherings there for the last couple of months. Uh, you have noticed it's getting colder out and getting more difficult to that and winter is coming. And so they have been looking for what are we going to do a bit longer term because uh, they are still not allowed into their building. And so long story short, they are going to be using our building for their worship and so they're still going to be doing their own thing they're not going to be a part of our service and and we have just been in conversation with them for the last few weeks so they will be meeting on Sunday afternoons for their worship service they'll be meeting in the center and then a couple of times a week they will be meeting here as well for their Bible studies and their prayer times together and so after conversation we decided to forego rent we're just happy to open up our doors and welcome them in uh, and they're our brothers and sisters and we're all on the same team and we're working towards the same goal and so uh, they're very great and so I, I mainly tell you just to let you know what's going on, but also just if you see people around that you don't recognize and you wonder who are all the strangers in the cafe having a Bible study, I don't know any of them, that is why. And you can join us in welcoming them. And uh, yeah, we just felt very strongly that they're in crisis, we have room that wasn't a hard decision either. And so we've opened our doors to them. And so you can be praying for them as they start today. Uh, and they will be joining in their worship services after our services are done. All right, Revelation 18 and 19, two chapters today. And uh, 
I've done a bunch of weddings during COVID and it's been challenging just because of restrictions, right? And it's been a bit tricky. There's been some new things to figure out. Uh, sometimes rules have changed. So it's been a little bit challenging. Part of the conversation that has come up, which I would always have with a couple uh, whenever I'm marrying them, pre-COVID or otherwise, part of the conversation is, okay, it's not so much about the wedding, it's about the marriage, right? That's the most important thing. Uh, one of the good things has been us reminding ourselves of that as we've gone through the last 18 months is that weddings are wonderful. I believe very much in ceremonies and celebrations, but they can look lots of different ways as well. And so it doesn't have to be locked into one certain way that we do weddings. And so there's been a lot of creativity that has come up. But the wedding is still important, and, and it's important even if it's not the huge celebration. If it's small or bigger, it doesn't matter. Because the, the wedding ceremony, the actual coming together on the wedding day, is something that has been anticipated, Right? The husband and wife-to-be, the, the fiancés, have been waiting. And the relationship is already there. The love is already there. The promise is already there, right? With the giving of the ring and the receiving of the ring and the yes to the proposal, a promise has been made. And so all of those pieces are there, and yet the fullness of it has not yet come. The fullness of that relationship has not yet come. On the wedding day, the fullness comes, the covenant is made to become one. The whole thing gets consummated. And so all of the love and all of the anticipation and all of the promise and all of the plans are all coming together on the wedding day. And so there's this great anticipation that goes into it. And waking up on my own wedding day, uh, there were butterflies, right? And I, I knew it was going to be a good day. I wasn't worried about Sarah standing me up or anything. I don't have any problems standing up in front of people and talking. So that wasn't it. There were butterflies nonetheless, just because it's a big deal. There's been so much planning and there's been so much talk. And again, the promise has already been made. The, the plan has already been made. The love is already there. The commitment is already there but it's going to a whole other level on the wedding day. And the wedding, that picture of a wedding, is something that Jesus would use to talk about uh, when we are reunited with him finally in its fullness. He said it will be like a wedding day. It'll be like a banquet. And that is actually where our text is going today. In Revelation 18, 19, this picture of a wedding as we are coming to the end of Revelation. So let's take a look at our text Buckle in, because I'm going to read for a while, because we're going through two chapters today. Revelation 18, starting in verse 1. 17, if you remember last week, was the great prostitute. Do you guys remember that at all? <laughs> that message? Uh, so we talked about Babylon and all the things that Babylon could represent. Uh, Babylon is falling, and we are, are continuing off the end of that. Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins." so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. 
In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow, I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves." They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to recover. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin." Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who learn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin." Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's most important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. After this... I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. 
At this, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With those signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. How we doing? There's a lot of good in those chapters. There's a lot of tough stuff in those chapters as well. And as we go through this, we're not going to touch on every verse today, just in the interest of time, just because we, we got to carry on. But we do want to touch on a few of the things. And so back to the top, 18 verses 1 through 3. Uh, an angel comes. We've seen lots of angels in Revelation. Uh, this one is particularly glorious and authoritative, apparently. And he shouts, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. As we talked about last week, uh, Babylon was a city. And so in the first century, they would have understood Babylon to mean Rome. There are other ways to look at that as well. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. So there's a listing happening of what this city has been involved in. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And so, uh, again, just a bit of a recap of the problem with Babylon. And so basically saying this city, uh, Rome at the time, perhaps an end times, one world order as we've talked about, perhaps just representing empire in general, the powers of this world in general, the governments of this world in general. But she's, she's a problem. There's a lot of awful stuff going on in and through this city. Uh, there is all sorts of impurity. There's all sorts of evil. There's all sorts of demonic stuff going on. There's, in Rome's time, there was all kinds of idolatry. There was all kinds of immorality and the whole world was being corrupted by her. And the kings of the earth were being drawn in. They were being seduced by the power of Rome. And so there's a bit of a recap there. Here's why all of this is happening. And so then within that, as some of that is being unpacked, if we jump ahead uh, to the next couple of verses, verses 4 through 7, as that's all being listed, then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people. Like, get out of the city. 
so that you will not receive any of her plagues. You won't share in her sins. Her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So give back to her as she is given. Pay her back. And, and so there's this picture here for God's people, and it's really been the encouragement all throughout Revelation of don't get caught up in the ways of the world. Don't be drawn in by false worship. Don't be drawn in by the emperor. Don't be drawn in by the immorality that is going on around you. You are God's people. You are supposed to be holy. You are supposed to be different. You are supposed to be set apart. And so there's a warning there to God's people, like, don't be found in this place when the judgment comes. And it probably doesn't literally mean run out of the city as much as it is be separate, be different, and, and don't get caught up in everything that you see that is going on there. This picture of her sins have piled up to heaven. It reminds us a little bit like the Tower of Babel. We're going to build this thing out of our pride that's going to reach all the way to heaven. This is not just, uh, you know, they, they did some minor things. Their sins have been piling up. God has been waiting. God has been giving more time. God has been calling for repentance, and Babylon has refused. And so the sins have piled up and piled up and piled up and piled up. And then there's a point where God's patience does run out. He says, I cannot let this evil just go on indefinitely forever and ever and ever. The sins have now reached a place where they need to be dealt with. There's an interesting story that happens in the life of Abraham when God has promised him uh, the promised land. He said, this is what your land is going to be. I will have a land that is just for you, for your people. But then God says, it's too early now for you to take the land. There's other people living there, and their sins have not reached the full measure yet. So it would actually be unjust for Israel to take the land right now. But as time goes on, the sins of the Canaanites is going to pile up. And then there will reach a point where it reaches a tipping point, And then Israel will be the agent of God's justice as the nation of Israel. They will go in and Canaan will, will pay that price for their sins. So God is always giving time. He is not flying off the handle. He is not unjust. And so there are sins that have piled up and piled up and piled up. They have finally reached the point where God says, I, I need to act. And important to note that when the judgment's coming on Babylon, uh, you saw this in those last couple of verses of she is reaping what she has sowed, right? The judgment ultimately is self-inflicted, even if God is the one who is acting. Ultimately, she has brought it on herself entirely. It is not something that God would wish for her, but because of her actions, because of her sin, because of her evil, because of her refusal to turn away from it, it is now coming back on her. She is reaping what she has sowed. And scripture says that is true for us. If we sow for good, we will reap the good. If we sow for evil, we will reap the evil. She is reaping the evil consequences of all the evil she has done. The punishment that she's going under is self-inflicted entirely. And so the call for God's people is don't, don't be there when the judgment comes. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from them, meaning the world, and be separate, says the Lord. Now we can take that to extremes. Mennonites at times have taken that to, to the literal extreme of we are going to remove ourselves from society, create our own Christian culture, and we're just going to avoid the world as much as we can. And that's not really the picture that Scripture gives us. You know, when Jesus talks about, you know, I'm sending you out, Right? Like, I want you to be salt in this world. I want you to be light in this world. And when it comes to salt, you know, you don't typically sit down and eat a bowl of salt. Salt's not meant to be concentrated. Salt is meant to be sprinkled. Salt is meant to be spread. 
and that is us. Jesus says that we are to be, the kingdom of heaven is meant to be like taking some yeast and working it through a whole mound of dough. Like we are the ones who are supposed to go out. We are the ones who are supposed to spread. We are the ones who are supposed to share. That is our job as the church. And so when scripture says come out from them, it doesn't literally mean cut yourself off. It is trying to live out the fine balance and, and thread that, that needle that Jesus prayed into at the Last Supper, that we would be in the world, but not of the world. That we're not leaving the world, that we're not cutting off the world, that we're not separating from the world. If all the Christians just banded together and stayed away from non-Christians altogether, how are they ever going to hear the gospel, right? How is light ever going to shine? And so we are meant to be out, scattered, spread among them, sharing and, and letting our light shine. That is what we're supposed to do. While we're doing that, we are simultaneously not being corrupted, not being drawn into the sin, not being caught up, not being seduced. And that is a bit of a tightrope, right? It's easier in some ways to say, forget it. We're just going to shut ourselves off, do our own thing, surround ourselves with only Christians, and then we'll, we won't be tempted in those ways. And that's not the picture that Jesus gives us, it's also not how he lived his life, right? He came right down in the midst of the people who didn't know him and lived his life there. So come out from them and be separate doesn't mean remove yourself entirely from the people of this world. It is, no, while you are amongst them, while you are praying for them, while you are sharing Jesus with them, while you are loving them, while that is happening, make sure you are separate from them and their sin. Make sure that you are not looking exactly like the world. We are called to be holy. We are called to be different. And so it is admittedly a bit of a tightrope walk, but that is exactly what we are called to do. I won't go through all the next section, but there are three woes that come. Now we say woe, you know, woe is me. It's kind of someone being melodramatic. Um, in the Bible, woe is a very specific word, and it really it is a cry of despair. It's a cry of despair because judgment is coming. It is a, it is a true lament. Uh, so Jesus would say it over Jerusalem. Jesus would say it uh, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's like, judgment is coming because of what you have been doing. And so it's not a light and fluffy word. There are three different groups. Each of them cries out a woe in here. We have the kings of the earth who had committed adultery with the great prostitute. We have the merchants of the earth who had grown wealthy through her. And we have the sea captains, those who work on the sea and, and all the people, the sailors and everybody, they also have a woe. And now you'll notice, perhaps you noticed, as they are despairing over Babylon's fall, it's not really because they're sad about Babylon, right? They're saying, oh, our source of wealth is gone. No one is trading with us anymore. Like, it's a very self-serving sadness. And so they are standing away. They have bailed, right? They are standing a far way off, Scripture says. They are getting out of the way of the judgment. And so even though in the previous chapter we saw that they desired her and they grew wealthy through her and she gave them all their power, the minute the trouble shows up, they're like, we're done, we're out. And as they weep over her, they're not weeping for her, they're weeping for themselves, right? Our, our whole way of life is gone. Our source of power is gone. Our, our trades, our, our trade routes are gone. All of that is gone. And you might have noticed, and it's easy to skip over, but in the long list of here's all the things, here's all the luxurious things, uh, and I came across a commentator this week who says, you know, take a look at that list of luxuries and ask yourself, how many of these do I have in my house right now? 
And what does that mean for us as we process this passage? But there's lo- this long list, right, of gold and silver and wood and ivory and all of these things. And then it's thrown in at the end. It's almost like a throwaway line. Oh, and human beings sold as slaves are on this list. And it's been estimated that in the Roman Empire, about one in five people were slaves. And they were often, as they conquered a country, they would take all the strong and healthy people, they would ship them back to Rome as slaves, men and women and children. And slavery was the back on which a lot of this luxury was built. Um, If you have to pay everybody, then it's hard to build luxury. But if you've got slaves, then it's really easy to build luxury. And so they had become wealthy on the backs of the slaves. And I just throw that in there to say it's become somewhat popular uh, in our time amongst uh, the loud atheist voices in our culture to point to slavery as a thing uh, to prove that God's not real. Because there are certain passages in Scripture uh, where God seems to at least be okay with it. Uh, there are times where, where he seems to command it in the law. There's a couple of places there in the New Testament. Paul doesn't correct slavery. And so, you know, that was used in the time of slavery in the States and in Canada to justify, well, God's not really anti-slavery. Because if he was, why doesn't Paul just say, hey, no more slaves, guys? And he doesn't. And yet, there's also passages like this. Where you go, this is one of the reasons judgment is falling on Babylon. This is one of the reasons the wrath of God is coming. And there are other passages as well. Don't ever let anyone try and tell you that the Bible's pro-slavery. And, or, you know, if you're having a conversation with someone who is trying to justify that, you know, they don't believe in God because the Bible's pro-slavery. It's not true even a little bit. If you look at the whole scope of what scripture has to say about slavery, it's very, very clear. Our God is a God of freedom. That is who he is. And so there is at times an accommodation for slavery, understanding that that was the fallen world that we live in. But, you know, this is one of the reasons that the wrath of God is coming on Babylon is because this slavery is happening. And so there are are continual rebukes towards Babylon, chapter 18, verse 23 and 24. Your merchants were the world's most important people. Yeah, I mean, relatable at all to today, right? The the wealthiest people in the world, the greatest business leaders in the world, Uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg and others who control the social media, like the wealthy people are the world's most important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her, in Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Uh, That last line's probably a bit of hyperbole, a bit of exaggeration, but uh, as we've talked about Babylon, to hear that word Babylon for the readers of the first century, they are hearing Rome as that happens. And so the Roman merchants were the world's most important people. Rome had cast a spell that was taking over the whole planet as they knew it at the time. Rome had shed the blood of prophets. Rome had shed the blood of God's holy people. And Rome, just in general, was just a really violent empire. They conquered by the sword. And everybody fell to the sword. And Rome had invented just new ways of doing war, new weapons, new ways to get troops places quickly, new ways to do supply lines and move water and things like that. And so Rome was really good at violence, really good. And so it seems to be saying, Rome, you're just a violent place. And as you are a violent place, as you are responsible for much of the violence around the world, uh, you're going to be dealt with violently, that that is all going to come back on you. And, and the way that you have seduced the world, the magic spell that you cast is all being exposed. It is all coming down in the end. And so those, there's three woes. There are three cries of lament over the fall of Babylon. And then that gets set 
beside three hallelujahs that come from the hosts of heaven. So the people of earth who are not walking with Jesus are crying woe because Babylon is being destroyed, but heaven is actually rejoicing over this. Moving into chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. After this, after the woes, the lament, the tears, the despair, after this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. Our human judgments aren't always true and just because we're human. His are always true and just. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And so while the earth is, is despairing and lamenting as the, the judgment of God comes, heaven is rejoicing that the judgment of God comes. There's just a full-out worship service breaking out in heaven. And that might sound a little weird. How can we be rejoicing in, in judgment? Right? We are rejoicing in the destruction of Babylon. But the clues are there in the text is that, A, she is being treated as she treated others. There's a justice to it, that she is reaping what she has sowed, and that is being very, very clear. But it's also she has killed God's people. Right? She has persecuted God's people. She has cut off the heads of prophets. She has crucified not just Jesus, but people who followed after Jesus. That she has been doing these things, and so God is now dealing with that. God is actually vindicating. God is setting right what has been wrong. God is taking what is evil and dealing with it so that he can ultimately replace it with what is good. And so these three hallelujahs rise up. Hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It simply means praise the Lord. And so every time we say hallelujah, that is what we are saying, praise the Lord. They are praising him for setting things right, for dealing with evil once and for all. Jumping down to verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So we move into this wedding imagery now. And, and so this is the, the consummation. We are coming to the end. This is, this is what uh, every Christ follower has been looking for, that one day we will see him face to face. Right? We, we have seen him by faith. We have seen him. We have glimpsed him by the Holy Spirit. We have seen him in his word. We get a taste of heaven now here on earth. When Jesus arrived on earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven has started. Uh, we're going to get to the fullness of it later, but you get to taste it now. You get a glimpse of it now. The Holy Spirit has come as a down payment, Scripture says, a deposit for all the things that are to come. And so the wedding imagery, again, it just it reminds us of that anticipation. We know there's more than this, right? And, and how good is it, you know, to come together on a Sunday morning, to worship together, to sing our songs, to be with one another? Like, it's amazing. If COVID does nothing else, it reminds us of how important this is, right? We, we've missed that at times throughout all of this. And so it's so good to be together, and it is so good to sing together, and it is so good to be in his presence together and, and taste of the Holy Spirit together. And, and that's just the glimpse. We've, we've, we're just anticipating we get this, this little taste of that. And again, when the man proposes and says, will you marry me? And the woman says, yes, okay. The, the love is there. The promise is there. The relationship is there. All of those things are already there. And that's what we're living out right now. We're kind of in the engagement phase. 
where we know the Lord, we love the Lord, we've, we've committed to him, he's committed to us, we know all these things, we, we have the, the relationship, all of that is there, but we haven't got to the fullness of it yet. And the fullness of it is the wedding day to come, is that, that there is a day that will come and, and it will be either as we go to be with him if we pass away or as he returns for us, but there will be a time when we will get the fullness of everything we've been waiting for. We will get the fullness of what we get a glimpse of and a taste of now. All of that is coming. And so pointing to this wedding, uh, again, if you're married and you remember your own wedding day, you remember the anticipation, right? And scripture uses this picture that all of creation is groaning for this day, like a woman in labor, that creation knows that there is something more. Creation knows that the fallenness and the brokenness and the sinfulness and the evil of this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. So creation is groaning. And scripture says we too are groaning by the spirit within us. We know there's more. We know there's more than this. We know that this is not right as we look at the news and as we live out our lives, as we look within our own souls and we see our own sin. We know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. We know that. And so we groan, we long, we wait for more. And just like the, the engaged couples just anticipating, we're waiting for our wedding day when more, when our relationship becomes more, when everything goes deeper, when we go to the next level, we're waiting for that day. And so the wedding of the Lamb has come. The bride is ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And so uh, I love even in this, it's making clear that we still, our righteous acts don't earn us a place here, right? The fine linen, linen is given to us to wear, right? So even there, we're getting this picture of we're saved by grace, we're not saved by works, and yet, as we commit ourselves to him, there are works for us to do. There are things that he wants us to do. There are things that he has prepared for us to do. And so our job is to live out what he has called us to do now as we walk with him. And then we, as we do that, uh, we are, there's a purity to it because we are doing it because of him. Again, not because we're earning it, but because he has invited us. He has proposed. Jesus has proposed to the world. Some of us have said yes, and now we are waiting for that time. The anticipation is there, just like a bride and groom anticipate their wedding day when the relationship will reach its fullness. So John, our author, has been through a lot at this point, right? From Revelation 1 up to Revelation 19, like he's, you know, he's in prayer one Sunday. He doesn't know the fullness, I'm sure, of what's about to come. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in this vision. And just on an objective level, it's a crazy vision, right? The whole thing he's seeing, it's all God-led. It is all spirit-breathed. But uh, that doesn't make the whole picture any less crazy, just in terms of everything that he has seen. And he has seen Jesus, the glorified, resurrected king, and he's been caught up to heaven, and he's been in the throne room of God, and he's seen the angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And then he's seen the earth and the sins of the earth piling up, and he's seen a great red dragon and a glorious, majestic woman, and he's seen a beast come out of the ocean and another beast come out of the earth and he has seen the earth corrupted and falling under the spell of this beast and worshiping this beast and he's seen some people get marked with the mark of God and he's seen some people get marked with the mark of the beast and then he's seen this great prostitute that is there like he's seen a lot at this point he's seen heaven rejoicing he has seen judgment falling he has seen the glory of God and the goodness of God showing up the faithfulness of God the justice of God and he has heard heaven shouting this glorious praise 
praises to God because he is good, because he is faithful, because he is just. And as all of that happens, it seems, John gets a little overwhelmed in chapter 19, verse 10. At this I fell at his feet, the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. <laughs> no, bad John. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And so there's a, I love John. And, and I love that he kept this in, right? This is one of the reasons we know this is inspired is because usually when humans write, they want to make themselves look better. And so they edit certain things to make themselves look better. And so John is breathing this out by the Holy Spirit and, and make sure to include this, that John just in the light of all these things gets overwhelmed, falls down before this angel, not God, and begins to worship him. And I mean, if you've been with us, tracking with us throughout Revelation this whole time, you know that one of the main themes of Revelation is don't worship anyone but God, right? John has heard this and seen this over and over and over again. And I go, that's actually kind of encouraging. Because even though John has seen Jesus face to face and been in heaven and seen the throne of God face to face and seen all these angels and seen all these things, uh, the fact that he has a stumble here you know, idolatry is something we can all stumble into, no matter what we've been through, no matter how devout we are, no matter how solid and secure our faith is. And, and we might not literally worship something as God, but idolatry can happen anytime we are elevating anything in our lives above Jesus. And it happens very easily with things like work and things like money. Uh, where are we getting our, our self-worth from? What are we giving our time to? It is very, very easy to elevate things in our lives above Jesus. I think it's universal. I think it's the human condition. We always have to be aware of it. So the fact that John, seeing what he's seen and having been through what he's been through, can stumble into it, and, you know, the, the word for him, this isn't like the people of earth in Revelation who have been doing this over and over and over again. He has a bad moment. The angel's gracious, right? Okay, hey, no, 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 enough of that. Stop, stop, stop. Worship God, not me. I'm a servant just like you. For it's the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Your version might say something like, for it is the, test the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, it gets translated in different ways. But I think the, the newer version of the NIV here gets the heart of it right. Um, the Holy Spirit who breathed through the prophets, the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit testifies to who Jesus is. And Jesus said that's what the Holy Spirit would do when he came. He would point to Jesus. He would glorify Jesus. He wouldn't pay, you know, draw the glory for himself. He'd be there to glorify Jesus. So the spirit of prophecy, the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that breathed through the prophets, that breathed through the apostles, that breathed through Jesus Christ himself, that spirit bears testimony to Jesus. When we testify about Jesus, we are in step with what the Holy Spirit is doing. It's, it's important that we are doing that, that we are sharing that story, that we are talking about who he is, that we are talking about what he's done. When we do that, we are in step with the Holy Spirit because that's who he is and that's what he does. We come to the last part and we are getting to really the climax of the story. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Notice capital F on Faithful, capital T on True. His name is faithful and true. That is his name. That is who he is. 
Jesus can never not be faithful. He can never not be true. They're not talking of just about character qualities that he is acting faithful, that he is acting truthfully. He is. The core of who he is is faithful and true. And in the midst of everything in Revelation of wars and rumors of wars and disasters and catastrophes and judgments and persecution and bloodshed and everything, there is one over all of it who is faithful and he is true. And whatever you are facing today, there is one over all of it who is faithful and he is true. He can't not be faithful. It's impossible for him to not be faithful. He is always, always faithful. We sang the great hymn for, you know, decades. Great is thy faithfulness, right? That's who he is. He is always faithful and he is always true. With justice, he judges and wages war. Human wars are often not just right? We try to make excuses to make them look really just, but they are often not. But when Jesus comes to, to do what he needs to do, it is always with justice. Her eye, his eyes are like blazing fire. We've seen that back in Revelation chapter 1. On his head are many crowns, just to say he is the, the crowned one of all the crowned ones that you might see on the earth. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. So even here, we don't get to know everything because we're not God. Gentle reminder, you're not God. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're not God. We don't get to know everything. We don't get to understand everything. That's just the way of it. And, and the, the sooner we can embrace that, the happier we'll be. We'll stop trying to be God and get frustrated that we don't know everything and can't predict everything in this life. He is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood. That could be his blood, the blood of Jesus on the cross. That could be the blood of the evil uh, who are being punished now. And his name is the Word of God. We'll come back to that in a second. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses themselves, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. We'll come back to that too. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He is the one that is executing. Jesus has always executed the will of the Father. That's been Jesus' job from the beginning. And so here he is executing the last part of God's wrath. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And isn't that just one of the coolest things that Jesus gets called? Whatever kings, whatever presidents, prime ministers, whatever rulers we have on this world, we, we have them. Uh, we are called to, to honor them and submit to them, except when they tell us to contradict the ways of Jesus and his word. But they are, whatever kings are here, there is a king of kings. There is a king over kings. Whatever lords we have, whatever powers and principalities there are, whatever the enemy is up to, all of those things are here and they are real. Jesus is lord over all of it. And I, I could just hear that name all day. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's a part of Handel's Messiah, which we play at Christmas time, where they sing King of Kings, Lord of Lords over and over and over and over again. I can't get enough of it, to be honest. It's my favorite part. Because whatever's going on here, there's a king over it all. Whatever's going on here, there's a Lord over it all. And, and as we've talked about the different ways that Revelation gets interpreted, you know, whether you are a, a Roman Christian in the first century being persecuted, or whether you are, you know, in the Middle Ages as a Christian being persecuted by the Islamic empires as they were spreading, or whether you are a Christian under communist rule and you are being persecuted there, whether you're a Christian on the world today being persecuted by your government or by the people around you, whether this does refer perhaps to an end times one world government where there will be persecution. Whatever the application, the ending is always the same. 
There is a faithful and true rider who is coming, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So whatever suffering we are going through always gets reframed that that is the end of the story, that that is how the story ends. There is a faithful and true rider who is coming back. And one of you asked last week, and it was a great question of, okay, Chris, I didn't say it that mean. That was, it's, this is me interpreting it a little bit. It was a very lovely conversation. But they said, you know, you've been saying all through Revelation that we don't have to take this literally. We don't have to take that literally. This is a vision. Visions are typically interpreted symbolically. And so, you know, the end of the story is Jesus comes back. So why would we believe that that's literal then if everything else could be symbolic, right? We've said the dragon is symbolic and the prostitute is symbolic and the beasts are symbolic. So if Jesus is coming back, then why do we believe that is literal as part of our faith? And we do. We believe Jesus is literally returning to the earth. And the simple answer is, is that that gets talked about a lot of places besides Revelation alone. There's a lot of places in the New Testament where this gets shown up. I've lost my thing, guys. Oh, there we go. There's a bunch of different places that talk about it, and they talk about it as a literal thing. And Jesus would actually make really clear in Matthew chapter 24 when he's talking about the end, and he said, you know... I'm paraphrasing dramatically now, but he just says there will be no mistaking it when I come back the second time. He said it's going to be like lightning in the sky, just like when you see lightning and everybody around sees the lightning in the sky. That's how dramatic that his return is going to be. And so the first time Jesus came, he came subtle. The first time Jesus came, it was under the radar, right? The first time Jesus came, he came quietly, right? Bethlehem, baby, Poor family, poor part of the world. It, you know, there's angelic stuff going on there, but it wasn't trumpeted to the entire planet. Uh, when Jesus came the first time, it was subtle. When Jesus comes the second time, it is not subtle at all. The first time he came as the lamb, the second time he's coming as the lion. The second time he's coming very loudly. When he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the angels came to say to the apostles, you know, stop standing around looking up in the sky. He's going to come back exactly in the same way that you just saw him go. And so when the New Testament talks about the return of Christ, it's not talked about as a metaphor. It's not talked about as something symbolic. It's like, no, we're literally going to see this happen. And the world is going to see this happen, unlike the first time he came this is going to be something that gets seen everywhere. And so as we always are seeking to interpret Scripture with Scripture, it is certainly absolutely a fair question to say, well, if Revelation is symbolic, why would we think the return of Christ was going to be literal? And the answer is because everywhere else in the New Testament that talks about it, it is talked about as a literal thing. And so we, we take that literally, whether it's literally on a horse and that's literally what it looks like, that would be up for debate. But as Jesus comes back in this passage, it makes clear clear. It says his name is the word of God. And so that's where we know who we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about Jesus in John chapter one. That's one of the names that John gives him there, that Jesus is called the word, the word of God. And there's a few different reasons for that. But one of them is that Jesus is the word of God revealed that the Bible, we also call the word of God. The Bible is the revelation of God that is written down for us to, to read together and discern together and understand by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God written down. Jesus is the word of God lived out. Jesus is the word of God, the revelation of God in human form. If the Bible were a person, it would be Jesus. That's what it would look like. That's what it looks like when someone lives this out perfectly. And so that's the re one of the reasons why Jesus is called the word of God. He's also called the word of God because when God speaks, stuff happens. 
right? God doesn't have to get up out of his chair to do anything. He doesn't have to, you know, do a nod or, or wave his hands. He doesn't have to do a thing but speak. In most of the creation stories of other religions that began around the same time, that began to emerge when this one began to emerge, there are creation stories that talk about, oh, there's this battle between good and evil, and there's this struggle, and usually good prevails, but there's a cost to it, and the gods have to do all these things to make life happen. Our God didn't even get up out of his chair. He just said, let there be, and there was. When God speaks, stuff happens. And, and you'll know the verse that God says in Isaiah. He says, when I speak, my word's going to go out, and it's going to accomplish something, right? I speak something to the earth, and my word goes and does what it's supposed to do. It won't return to me until my will is completed. So God's word gets stuff done. God's word fulfills God's will. And that's another reason Jesus is called the word of God. And so we are seeing as he returns, this is the fullness of God. The revelation of God is there in the rider on the white horse and as the white the rider on the white horse comes God's will is being done God's word is accomplishing its purpose it's coming to the earth to do what God wants it to do and so as we come to our last couple verses today chapter 19 verse 19 through 21 then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army but the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, the second beast, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. If you've missed any of these messages that have already talked about these things, by the way, they're all on YouTube. You can catch up there. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So... This is traditionally called the Battle of Armageddon. And as we can see, it's not really a battle, right? It's not, the outcome is not in doubt. This is not in any way an equal contest. Uh, whether it will be a literal battle, like, like uh, an actual warfare type situation, we don't know. Uh, it could just be a way of saying all those who oppose Jesus in this life will be dealt with, ultimately. But as Jesus comes, you'll notice as well, he also doesn't fight the way a typical army would fight, right? It's not like the, all the hosts of heaven are literally grabbing swords and battling against the things of the earth. Again, the sword that he has comes out of his mouth because he is the word of God. Scripture also talks about the word of God as if it is a sword. And so when Jesus comes, it doesn't need to actually be a literal like flesh and blood battle. Jesus will just need to speak and then it will be over because that's who he is and so he doesn't actually have to literally lift a sword it just is not necessary for him to do that he is bigger and stronger than that so Jesus will speak and this will be done and then the it talks about the beast being thrown into the lake of fire and we're going to stick a pin in this part because we're going to come back to that uh, this is kind of the classic uh, picture of hell right this this fiery you know lake that never uh, goes out and we're going to actually take some time in a later chapter to talk about that in more detail and uh, take some time just to meditate on those things come on up worship team we're just about done so as heavy as some of it is in terms of it's not nice to think about birds you know eating flesh and it's not nice to think about you know, war and bloodshed. It's not nice to think about judgment. We've talked about that a lot in the series just because obviously Revelation talks about that a lot. And yet we would remind ourselves again that the earth has been given lots of time to repent. The call has gone out to repent. They have refused to do it. And so we have talked about how God, you know, all through his interaction with humanity, 
Uh, you know, he has given us his word to say, here's what the standard is. And he's sent us prophets and apostles to come and unpack that and bring the revelation of the Holy Spirit. He has sent his son to die for our sins. And he has sent his son to rise from the grave to conquer our death for us. And he has given out the invitation and said, God loves you. God wants to be reconciled to you. Turn away from your sin and come back. He's given the world the church to go out and share that message everywhere. And he has given time for all of these things to sink in. And so as much as we don't love dwelling maybe on the thought of the judgment of God, the question comes, well, what else could God have done? He has to deal with evil. He has to. He absolutely has to. He cannot let it go on forever. He has done everything he can in order to save whoever would call upon his name. Some are refusing to do that, and some are staying in their sin, and some are turning away from his ways, and some are refusing to acknowledge that. And so his judgment comes, and that is the the tragic end. But like with Babylon, for anyone who comes under God's judgment, ultimately they have brought it on themselves. He has given every way out that he can give, every possible opportunity to us. And so part of our job as the church is to continue to be sharers of that, that God loves you, God wants to be reconciled to you. There is a, there is a way out of your sin. There's a way out of your separation from him. And so as we talk about thriving in this year, we've set that as a theme, that this would be a year of thriving. How, like the Apostle Paul, can we say, I've learned the secret to be content no matter what my circumstances? Paul, who went through all sorts of suffering in this life, who said, I can be content anyway because of what Jesus is doing in me. How can we be more like that? So in light of these verses, where will we thrive? Well, first, we're going to thrive when we do what the call comes to the world in chapter 18, come out of the world. Not literally meaning abandon the world or or remove yourself from all people who don't know Jesus, but we will thrive when we come out of the world, when we are holy, when we are different. And if I were to say to you today, what sin makes you like the world right now, you probably don't need to think too hard about what that would be. Right? If you were to say, okay, what's one area of my life where I know I'm not in line with God's word and his will? What is that? What needs some attention? What needs some prayer? What needs some accountability? What needs maybe someone to talk through and, and spend some time kind of working through that? Um, yeah, what is that? What do you need to come out of? What do you need to move away from? What do you need to to pay attention to in that way? And, you know, there's appeal in sin or else we would never do it, right? There's something about it that's attractive. There's something about it that we want to do. But we know from Scripture that these things are ultimately toxic. They're killing us. They are doing damage to our souls. They're doing damage to other people. And so come out of those things. Find the freedom in Jesus. Find the forgiveness there. Find the wholeness there. So what do we need to come out of? We're going to thrive when we do that. We're going to thrive as well as we have set, reframed, remembered that all of our suffering, all of the pain of this world, everything that we see, everything that we have been through, all the things that we carry, all of it end with the story of a white rider whose name is Faithful and True who even though he hasn't returned yet, even so today is the King of Kings and is the Lord of Lords over all of it. And we remind ourselves of this. We remind ourselves of this. It used to be one of the major themes in worship songs for centuries was Jesus is coming back. 
We don't do it that much anymore. But just over and over again, the church reminded itself, he is coming back. He will set this right. That evil will be dealt with. That empire will come down. That corruption will be removed. He will judge justly and he will set things right. And we will thrive when we place ourselves there in that understanding. When we don't fall into despair based on what we see around us. We don't fall into despair based on who's in power or who's not in power or who we would want to be in power. You go, nope, there is a king over those kings. There is a Lord over those lords, and he ultimately is the one that we serve. We will thrive there as well. And we want to worship him, as always, for a few more minutes this morning. So would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close, and as we fix our eyes on him and worship him today.